the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and we have a very special guest for you this evening. We hope you guys are all good out there in the world and everything is going great for you. And before we move on to the guest, I'd just like to remind you, please follow and support the show wherever you see the like, subscribe or whatever type of button you see. Thank you very much. We appreciate the support and we hope you're enjoying the content so far. So today I'd like to welcome Lenny DePaul. Lenny DePaul was promoted to the position of Chief Inspector Commander of the New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force in February 2007. One of seven regional task forces managed by the Marshall Service, the New York NJRFTF is made up of more than 300 criminal investigators from over 90 federal, state and local agencies in the two-state area. Since its inception, the task force has made more than 75,000 arrests. One of the original members of the RFTF when it was established in May 2002, Commander DePaul served both as the Deputy Commander and Supervisory Inspector with the task force prior to his promotion to Commander. Prior to that, he spent 12 years in the Warren Squad for the USMS Eastern District of New York. While assigned to the Warren Squad, Commander DePaul was directly responsible for hundreds of arrests, including several USMS major case fugitives. He also participated in the investigation of three USMS 15 most wanted fugitives, all of which resulted in arrest. During his tenure with the USMS, Commander DePaul has received numerous special achievement and special acts awards and was named the Investigator of the Year by the Federal Law Enforcement Foundation in 1996. In 2009, he was honored by the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association as a result of the exceptional efforts of the USMS RFTF program. He also received the 2009 Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement for his contributions to the reduction of violent crime. Commander DePaul supervised and coordinated a wide range of professional training for state and local law enforcement partners who participated in the task force and also assisted in training U.S. military special operations forces with respect to manhunting in the military. Prior to his employment with the U.S. Marshal Service, Commander DePaul served six years with the United States Secret Service. During the Reagan administration, he spent three years assigned to the White House, where he was responsible for protecting the president and the first family and the White House grounds. During his last three years with the USSS, Commander DePaul was assigned to the Foreign Missions Branch, which is charged with protecting foreign diplomats within the United States. A native New Yorker, Commander DePaul was born and raised in Utica, New York. Shortly after graduating from high school, Commander DePaul joined the United States Navy, where he served honorably for a total of eight years with five on active duty. During his Navy career, Commander DePaul was assigned to an amphibious assault group within the 7th Fleet Naval Station, San Diego, California. Lenny DePaul was the lead in a hit series on the A&E network titled Manhunters Fugitive Task Force, appearing in over 60 episodes during their three seasons of filming. He was cast as the Deputy Commander in charge of operations for a CBS show titled Hunted in March 2017. He was also involved in a History Channel show titled Hunting Hitler, which ran for three seasons. Additionally, Lenny has acquired his private investigator's license in the state of New York and has opened a PI consulting firm providing executive protection and building security. So welcome to the show, Lenny DePaul. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. 
It's a pleasure. As I, I was telling Lenny there before, I had seen Lenny for years on different shows and then I saw him again lately and I thought, okay, perfect candidate for the show. This is the kind of guest people love to listen to, you know? No, that's great. And I appreciate you having me on. I, you know, I've had a career with the United States government for about 35 years, so they owned me for a long time. Uh, so I'm kind of supposed to be retired, but <laughs> it's not working out too well. You are. Am I right in saying that you're like a, still a PI or is, is that retired from that, too? No, I have my PI license here in the state of New York. I do, in, you know, I do some work in, in executive protection and trying to help people find, uh, you know, their teenagers that are on the run or whatever. But, uh, you know, I, I do a variety of different things. I'm in, involved with television shows, consulting work. And, uh, you know, it's it's been interesting. In fact, this whole week, there was an escape out of a prison in Alabama. So I've been on and off with Fox and CNN and some of the major broadcast uh, news channels uh, trying to figure, but they just got captured last night. So it's been a hectic couple of weeks. Wow. And it's interesting, actually, you say that because not so long ago, my, myself, and my wife were watching that escape at Danamora. That was in New York, wasn't it? Or near upstate yes. New York. Upstate New York. Yeah, that was quite interesting. Did you have any involvement with that case? I did. I knew uh, Sweat and Matt are the two guys that escaped and then one of yeah. them was shot and killed. But uh, yeah, no, I was involved in that. And uh, we kind of had a pretty good idea that they stayed local uh, once that whole plan got foiled with the woman that helped them escape. Uh, and she ended up confessing. She has a panic attack the night before. She's supposed to pick him up as they popped up through a sewer on the other side of the wall. But uh, it didn't work out too well for them. You know, it's funny when you think of those kind of escapes and, you know, they're obviously very premeditated and it takes weeks to plan out. And, you know, whether it's Escape from Alcatraz or the Shawshank Redemption, I mean, they kind of glamorize it. But at the end of the day, once you leave those prison walls or through the sewers or whatever, and you're outside, it's kind of open, you're open game then, because <laughs> the problem is that you probably don't have a weapon on you, but you have people chasing you who are armed. And, you know, they're expecting that you are armed because they don't know otherwise. Well, correct. I mean, any escape case, I've worked several of them over the years uh, in the fugitive business, but, you know, they have a great game plan, you know, figuring out how to get out, you know, get outside the prison. But once they get on the other side of the wall, it's like, okay, now what do I do? Uh, you know, a lot of the, the, the escapes that I've worked, um, you know, yeah, they have a plan. They go dark. They go off the grid for a little while. Uh, if they're being assisted by somebody, they may have cash. So, but it always, it always ends up that they're, that they're caught. I mean, I, I always say you can run, but you can't hide. And when you run, you only go to jail tired. In American history, what's the longest that an escaped prisoner has been, you know, at loose? Well, you you, you said it a minute ago, the Alcatraz, uh, they, they're still, they, they've been on the run. Well, I suppose, <laughs> yeah. They, they're still out yeah. there, but we don't know. That, uh, do, you, do you think yourself, like with Alcatraz, that they did get away? Oh, they got away. I just don't know if they're still alive or what happened or they drowned or, you know, whatever the case is. But, uh uh, yeah, and I don't know a lot about that about that case. I know the U.S. Marshals actually were working that uh, for years, but uh, yeah, they're wherever they're at, uh, they're still out there. So that's that's probably the longest. Yeah, because that is kind of a different scenario. Because obviously, in in San Francisco Bay, there that was their biggest adversary, and the the point is that for the marshals or you know whoever was investigating at that time. They were thinking, well, where do you start? Because if you have no trace of them coming out of the water, 
like does does the search end in the water? That's the problem, isn't it? Well, it is. And I mean, you're certainly looking at them. But back then, there was no digital footprint. There was no, you know, cellular intercepts and, and technology that existed today. So it made it a little bit difficult, obviously. Um, you know, you want to look at everybody, tear their worlds upside down. Uh, we call it who's who in the zoo. A, a trusted circle of friend, friends is very important. Uh, so as a criminal, as a, as a fugitive investigator, you're, you're putting that puzzle together, connecting the dots. And, you know, you're looking at you're looking at everybody. So uh, but obviously they're, you know, whatever they did, whatever plan they had uh, worked. <laughs> so they're still they're still out there. Not sure if they're still alive. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's it. Yeah. There could be a distant memory, whether they made it or not. So let's um, we'll come back to the, the manhunting and later on in the U.S. Marshal job. But let's go back a little bit. You know, I like to go back kind of. And so so you were born in, in U- Utica. Is that how you pronounce it? Utica. Utica, 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 New York, which is central New York. Correct. It's in upstate New York. Yeah, it's kind of between Syracuse and Albany, isn't it? Correct. Exactly. It's right dead center, central New York. Uh, I lived upstate uh, with my family. Uh, I actually lived with my grandmother. Um, and sadly, she died in my arms at the age of 14. So when I turned 17, I, I ended up enlisting in the United States Navy. So I did, uh, I did five years active duty. Uh, in the Gator Navy, which is an amphibious assault group. I was out for five years out to sea. Uh, I left there and I was walking down the pier with my sea bag on my shoulder. And I looked around and I said, well, that was fun. Now what? I had no idea. I had no idea where to go, what to do. Ended up back in New York. Um, I was working construction uh, and doing a home improvement job in, in the Maryland in the Maryland area around DC. And I ended up putting windows in a guy's house who was an instructor at the secret service Academy. Uh, great guy. His name was Danny Sears from Brooklyn, New York. And he said to me, he said, well, we were in conversation. I said, what do you do? He says, I work for the, the secret service. I'm an instructor at the Academy. And I said, what's the secret service? I had no idea. And, and he had said, um, he said, and he explained himself and whatnot. And I said, well, I'm an uneducated military guy, but, uh, and, and he said, well, you can, you can apply for the uniform division within the Secret Service. You don't need a, a college degree. Uh, you got a great background. He said, why don't, why don't you put an application and see what happens? So I did. And about a year and a half later, I got a call on a Thursday afternoon from the recruiting folks at the Secret Service uh, headquarters and said to me, we got good news and we got bad news. And I said, well, what is it? And they said, well, the good news is you've got the job. You've been hired. The bad news is you start Monday. I said, I said, well, hold on a second. Wow. I, I got, but, uh, yeah, okay, I'm good. <laughs> I'll take the job. So, is there one central Secret Service training? Say, is it like similar to where the FBI train, or where where is the central location for training? Well, no, the FBI, DEA, their training camp is in Quantico, Virginia. We're at we have a, a training camp in Beltsville, Maryland, but everybody goes down to the. Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia. Okay, that's like except for the except for the FBI and the DEA. Every other federal agency, uh, that's their training camp. But we go down there for criminal investigator courses and whatnot. But then I go back to Beltsville, Maryland, uh, for the Secret Service uh, portion of the training, which is another nine ten weeks, I believe. So. It's an intense uh, training. Uh, the U.S. Marshal Service, they stay in Glencoe, Georgia, uh, for four months. They don't have a, a training camp locally anywhere. So uh, so I've, I've had my share of the federal law enforcement training camp for uh, over the past 30 years. I can imagine. And obviously, you said there the, the amphibious assault unit. What was the name? 
uh, the Gator Navy. Yeah, the Gator Navy. The Gator so Navy. was that was the amphibious assault unit? Were they kind of similar to the Navy SEALs, or was it specialized training? It was like an arm of of the underwater demolition teams back then, or Navy SEALs. Um, it wasn't, you know, we weren't SEALs, but we supported them. Uh, we had teams on our on the on board the ships that I was on, which is all amphibious assault ships. Uh, so we worked with a variety of different groups. Uh, the, you know, the Marine recon teams were on board and, and we would do just that amphibious assaults. We would hit the beach and clear the beach and, and clear it all for everybody to come in and fight the war. So, but I was in during peacetime. Um, it was after Vietnam and, and, uh, you know, we weren't, uh, it was, it was peacetime, which was kind of a, you know, kind of a blessing that nothing happened in the five years that I was in. So, but you play a lot of war games and, and you, uh, you know, I was overseas for a year and a half in the Far East. We were home ported in Alangapo City uh, in the Philippines. Uh, that was interesting, being in the Far East. for. I imagine, obviously, you were based out of San Diego, no? Yes, the 7th Fleet, San Diego, California, correct. San Diego there a few years ago, and I went to a tour around, the, you know, some of the naval ships and the carriers. And it's amazing in San Diego, isn't it, with the Navy there. There's such a feeling of the Navy in the city, isn't there? <laughs> It sure is. It's all Navy, uh, especially back when I was there. Uh, now it's it, I, I love San Diego. They have that gas lamp district or whatever, yeah. and there's a lot going on there. But uh, uh, back in my day, when I was out there, you know, it was it was all Navy. Everybody had short hair. Everybody wore uniforms. <laughs> you know, Different. so it, it was uh, it was kind of hard to dodge. Uh, yeah, kind of. You know, were you in the military? No, I'm not in the military. Of course you are. You know, yeah, so of was, course, of course. Different. So tell me then with Secret Service training, because, you know, you you see the Secret Service, obviously, in movies and some documentaries when they talk about JFK and Reagan and all these things. So is Secret Service training very different from, let's say, FBI Quantico training? Is it because you're obviously working as a bodyguard and it's close quarter protection rather than solving crimes, even though you probably do that in some instances. So the training is probably very different, no? Well, there's two diff different types of training within the Secret Service. You have that protection side where you're doing assault on a principal training and motorcades and things things like that, uh, all, all executive protection. And then you have the, the criminal investigator side uh, where they investigate credit card fraud, forgery, um, computer fraud, things like that as well. So there was two different sides to that. Special agents within the Secret Service do the investigative side and the protection side. Uh, I started with the uniform division, which was all protection. In fact, I was at the White House uh, with President Reagan right out of the academy for my first two and a half years uh, inside the White House, around the White House grounds, working all protection, going out on details. Uh, I came on in 1984, so it was after President Reagan was shot by John Hinckley. Uh, so he wasn't traveling much, but then the re-election came around. He started to travel again, and, and we hit the road. We didn't unpack our suitcase uh, suitcases at that point. But, uh, yeah, so it was interesting, I mean, being at the White House uh, with President Reagan. And here's a guy from Hollywood, right? So he, he would love to, let's say, like when a head of state would come into town, they would do their business in the morning in the Oval Office, the and then at night, they would have a state dinner. Uh, so I would always put in the work overtime because he would invite the who's who in, in Hollywood, you know, to the party. Uh, so I got to meet a whole lot of people from Frank Sinatra to Raquel Welch to, you know, uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Chevy Chase. I, there's a laundry list of people we met over the years uh, with wow. his parties. But, but President Reagan was a great, great man. I mean, he he had this aura about him when he walked into a room. He just he just glowed. 
uh, forget about politics. I mean, as a person, you're very personable and, and a funny guy. I mean, a very funny guy. Yeah, he was a character. You could always see that. And, you know, it's kind of, I suppose, when anybody from the acting world goes in, it. I suppose that's why a lot of people kind of, even though it's not possible, we're hoping someone like Arden Schwarzenegger could run for president because when you have that person with that kind of character and is involved in that, sometimes they go together well, don't they? Sure. Yeah, no, they have to. And, then, you know, there's politics, obviously, and, and, and uh, they surround themselves hopefully with the right people and, and so on. But uh, President Reagan, being from, uh, you know, Hollywood and show business, he had he had the best of both worlds. And, and uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher, Gandhi, Gorbachev, uh, Princess Di, didn't matter. Whoever, you know, he entertained, uh, they liked the guy. Putting aside politics, it did. And he got along very well with, like, Tip O'Neill, who was the Speaker of the House. Different sides of the aisle, but they go to dinner together. So you don't see that anymore. And I think that's what we miss, especially in this country. Yes, yes. And can I ask you then, you know, is, is it a myth that, you know, Secret Service agents have to kind of sacrifice themselves if need be? Or is, there, is that something that the agent takes on themselves? No, that's something where you're trained to jump in front of a bullet to save the president's life. And the training does exist. And and the obvious when President Reagan was was shot by John Hinckley, you saw that with with uh, with the, with the agents that were there. Uh, Timmy McCarthy, Dan McCarthy, Danny Spriggs, those guys, they were shot. And Tim McCarthy took the second round right in the stomach. So he jumped in front of the president. Um, so it's not a myth that does exist. That's uh, you know, you, you get asked that question at the interview, would you be willing to jump in front of a bullet to save the president of the United States life? And, and if you say no, I don't, I don't know where you'd end up, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, we know. all kind of think that question, you know, would you take a bullet for your child or your wife or whatever like that? And people go, of course, but obviously when you're doing it for somebody in power or, you know, a politician, you have to really be in a frame of mind. And uh, I suppose all the training helps. But I can imagine, though, as well, for for um, Secret Service agents who have been shot in the line of duty, maybe then they are not, I don't want to say damaged goods, but it's harder to do that again, no? I would, you know, I would think so, not having been in that in that situation. But Timmy McCarthy came back. He uh, He was promoted. In fact, he was put in charge of the First Lady's detail. Uh, after he healed up and came back, um, you know, I've been in shootings uh, several with the U.S. Marshal Service. And, you know, it's all about training. It's all about muscle memory. Uh, when you're engaged in that type of uh, life threatening situations, you you react accordingly the way you've been trained. In fact, if you talk to anybody that's been, you know, in a shooting or, or in a life threatening situation, they'll tell you, you don't even I don't remember what I did. I just reacted. <laughs> so it was you know, it's all muscle memory at that point. So getting getting back on on the horse, so to speak, jumping back in the saddle. I mean, it never affected me. Uh, you know, it's the old adage: if it doesn't kill you, it makes you a stronger person. So, um, you know, I, I never had a problem with it with respect to the Secret Service. I was never obviously in that situation, but uh, I know guys that were, and they they uh, they came back. So, um, you know, it's got to be tough. It's got to be tough because I I can tell you. There's was many nights that I popped up in the middle of the night with cold sweats, thinking about how I almost got shot and killed this morning at four o'clock. And, you know, uh, so that affects you that way. You talk about PTSD in the military. You know, the job I did knocking down doors for a living for three decades, chasing violent predators. Uh, yeah, yeah can, that'll get to you <laughs> after a while. But 
Yeah, because I was even watching that. Um, I, as I said, I, I watched bits and pieces of the Manhunter over the years, and but now I've kind of I've just started the first season there a few weeks ago, and um, I was watching that episode where Pepper Red Red. Uh, Pep, yeah. yeah, and he was looking for this guy Latif. And but one thing I was thinking to myself, you know, that one stage they were going out, and he said, "I don't have my vest." And then they, it didn't happen. And then later on, they had their vest. But even though they have the vest, why do let's say marshals or people in the line of fire? Why do they not wear any type of protective helmet, like let's say the military? If I'm a, a violent criminal. And I know, for example, the cops have gone have, have vests on. I'm sure there's headshots tried, no? Well, you're right. And with respect to what I did for a living, what the men and women do that are downrange every day chasing violent people, um, you, you have to put this into perspective because it's not all about kicking doors down and, and, and you know, yeah. being confronted with a, with a weapon or being shot at. You know, you're out there doing interviews. You're out there sitting surveillance. Right. You're out there doing a variety of things. So to be in full battle regalia, which we do have and we do train in, um, you know, it, it's a little cumbersome, you know, if you're in it all day long. Now, if you've got a you got somebody in your sights and, and the, the noose is tightening and you're hitting a specific location, um, you know, most of the time nowadays you've got ballistic shields, you have ballistic helmets. Uh, the appropriate body armor uh, that you should wear, um, you know, when you're out there. So, you know, it, it is a little difficult, though, to to, uh, to knock on a door and talk to mom with a helmet on. And, yeah, of course. And a long gun. And it's a little intimidating at times. But then again, that fugitive could be in mom's, you know, back bedroom. Uh, and and you're next thing you know, you're in a gunfight. So it, it's it's a tough call. But I understand what you're saying. The people that that do you know, the manhunting of the world, you know, they're trained to be SWAT team people. They yeah. got to be Q and a people. They got to know how to interrogate people. They got to, you know, so it's that well-rounded uh, investigator in the fugitive business uh, that you become. So, you know, you're a SWAT guy, you know how to make entries. You can do a room, a room clearing. Um, you're very proficient and effective with a weapon. You train all the time. I was a big proponent, huge proponent of training. Uh, we have a training camp in South Jersey that uh, I, I had 360 full-time investigators, 90 different agencies, and I was mandatory, made it mandatory that they trained, uh, you know, at least once a month or after they were involved in a critical incident. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, it's all about training and, and uh, utilizing the equipment that you're afforded. You know, I know you boxed in the Navy. I think you were light heavyweight, no? And so, obviously... Yeah, I was. Yeah. For some of the agents, you know, have martial arts training and I come myself from a, a martial arts background. So you can see how any kind of, you know, uh, tactical uh, martial arts or any kind of training like that could also help you in those situations, even though you you would rely on the weapons more and being armed. But I'm sure you have situations where, you know, the tables can turn even just detaining somebody and that training comes into a use, doesn't it? It, it definitely does. The, uh, the defensive tactics training that, that we use or that we've been through in academies and our training camps, you know, de-escalation is a big word. You, you know, pulling your weapons a last resort in a deadly, you know, yeah. when you're confronted in a deadly life-threatening situation. Uh, but Chinese Kempo, Japanese Shotokai, different, different uh, uh, um, 
you know, martial arts that we're trained with and whatnot. It's all on the defensive side. The weapon, like I said, I used to, I, I would made it, I would always make a joke like, hey, they, they got away with that martial arts stuff. They did away with that when they invented gunpowder. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, it's really, I can't tell you, you know, again, pulling your weapon, last resort, you know, utilizing defensive tactics and, and, and different types of holds and trying to get handcuffs on people. That happens every day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course. So you have to be you have to know what you're doing in that in that world. Definitely. I worked for a good few years in, in security and bouncing and this on door work. And the thing is, what you realize when you start doing it is that your ordinary person who's drunk, whether it be a man or woman, you know, is pretty feisty. But when you get somebody who's high on something or totally wasted, it's a different thing. And I like, obviously, you know, with PCP and all these kind of things, you get people who you could be going to somebody's door and you don't know what condition they're in. And you might think it'd take one or two to detain them in your case, and maybe you need more. So you never know what the person is capable of, do you? Well, I've seen people that have been shot several times and still kept coming because they're high on whatever. Uh, yeah, we're trained, you know, in my world, you're, you're trained to, uh, and, and I, I make a joke out of this as well, because I've had people say to me, oh, why didn't that police officer just shoot him in the arm or in the leg? <laughs> I'm, yeah. And, and, and it, you know, I can only laugh, I, I laugh, but I get, I understand what they're trying to say. But, you know, our training, especially with firearms, it's two to the chest, one to the head. If you're going to pull your weapon, yeah. you know, you don't aim that at anything you don't want to kill or, or maim, you know, or, or destroy. So, um, you know, we're trained, you know, we're trained to do that. And, and rightfully so, because if you do pull your weapon, it's a life threatening situation. Most of the people, 99.9 percent .9 of the, the fugitives that we chase are violent predators. I mean, these these men and women have six to eight prior arrests and, and they're they're pretty violent people. So. Terrorists, murderers, rapists, arsonists, gun runners, drug runners, the worst of the worst. So you have to be prepared. You have to train. Yeah. And I can imagine as well when somebody goes on the run and, you know, probably like you can explain this process more, but I would imagine they they break their bail and, you know, they, there's a warrant out for them and then they keep running. But with these violent criminals, is that the same thing or is it that they have evaded capture? What's the usual process for a violent criminal? That depends on the case. I mean, uh, let's take a, like a DEA, a drug enforcement uh, indictment warrant. Somebody has been indicted for narcotics trafficking or whatever. Um, you know, those type of warrants, they usually know they're wanted and they're going to they're going to go dark. I mean, they're going to try to elude capture. Um, you know, yes, there's probation, parole violators, but the underlying charges could be significant. You know, it could, it could be attempted homicide. It could be bank robbery, whatever. Um, you know, when you're chasing the, these people, you don't know what they did the night before. They could have robbed the bank the night before, even though they're only wanted on a simple parole violation. You know, it's a federal case or a state or local case. Uh, but you don't you have no idea what they did the night before. The point is, treat every every one of them the same because they're they're in, until right. they until they're confronted. If they're you respect us, we're going to respect you. It's as simple as that. Uh, you know, uh, I have gone after people that have you know triple homicide suspects that just throw their hands up and say, "Oh, you caught me. I'm sorry." You know, and then I've gone after 
probation violators that'll get in a, a you know a gunfight with you. So uh, you got to treat them all the same. You really do. And and um, you know when push comes to shove, you better be prepared. Or like I I say, when the defecation hits the ventilation, you got to know how to react. <laughs> yeah, and like as I was saying there, when I was watching that actual particular show with with, with Pep, and it was interesting because. They thought one guy was the guy and he wasn't, but they ran him anyway. So they, you know, they called it in and then he was wanted on a warrant. So I can imagine you get that a lot of the time, no? Oh, it happens all the time. Absolutely. I've chased people. I've, I've hit, door. I hit a door one morning going after a bad guy and I heard all this rustling going on. We get in, we clear that we don't, we don't see the guy. And I look up and he, go, he went up through a, uh, a vent into, uh, onto the roof in Brooklyn, New York. And they're attached, they're attached homes. And he's running across the rooftop. He okay. gets to the end. He gets to the end. He's five stories up and he jumps and lands in a pile of wood. He survived, but he made it across the street and his, his bones were coming through his legs. Wasn't Jeez. even the guy I was looking for. He was a probation violator on a state case. And we thought, you know, he thought we were looking for him. So, yeah, but yes, to answer your question, it does. It happens. It happens a lot. Yeah, I, I can imagine because the thing is, you know, when when the when the five zero arrive, people just think they're here for me. <laughs> well, well, and you're also laying your head and, and, you know, you know, I used to, I tell my kids, show me, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. Uh, you're going to hang out with the people you know that, that are acting just like you. So most of the time, these fugitives are laying their head, you know, or, or, or being aided and abetted or, or harbored by somebody that's, you know, uh, not exactly a, an average uh, citizen or, or should I say a law, a law abiding citizen. It's true. Isn't it too, though, how, even the most innocent people, when when the police come to your door, it can make you feel guilty. You've done nothing, but you're thinking, right. what what are they looking for? And people can't help that feeling because they're like, what? oh, my God. You know, I, I have a case. Uh, I have a, not a case, but I have um, an instance where once I was living in Dublin and there was a famous case in Ireland where there was a journalist gunned down. Her name was Veronica Gearan. They made a movie about her life and everything. She was uh, gunned down by one of the big drug cartels in Ireland. And but I was living in Dublin at the time. Uh, and it was a few months later. And one day, you know, the police came to the door and there's a search warrant for my apartment. And I was working in security and I was like, what, what's wrong? And they said, there was a guy living here before you moved in, you know, and uh, we believe that he might have stashed something in the house. And, and the guy was like, they were like treating me like, you know, I was not like I was the guy, but I was there with my girlfriend. And then the guy saw my uniform and he relaxed and he said, oh, you work in security. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, OK, OK. And um he said to me, don't worry. He said, there's nothing to worry about. He said, but, you know, we have to kind of do a." And I was thinking in my mind, Jesus, if they find something, then they're, are they going to pin it on me? So the problem with any kind of police or, you know, somebody coming to your door, even though you've done nothing, you have that feeling. Oh, my God. You know. Yeah. Feeling guilt. Absolutely. I get it. I understand it. But also put yourself in their shoes. You know, yeah. you know, they're they're in a in a foreign place. They don't know your house, your apartment, or whatever. Uh, so there's a lot that goes on in an investigator's mind as you're making an entry at oh dark thirty, you know, four o'clock in the morning. So, yeah. um, you know, until the dust settles and the smoke clears and we figure everything out, uh, you just got to cooperate and 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 then everybody, you know. I, but I I always had a different attitude. Like I said, the way I'm treated, that's how you know if I'm treated with respect and. And I'm not saying you have to, you know, but but 
I can't tell you how many doors I've knocked on where you meet resistance right from Jump Street, you know, right out of the box. Now, I expect mom and dad or relative, okay, I get it. And my first question to mom would be, hey, mom, if you knew where your son was, would you tell me? And nine times out of 10, they would say, no, I wouldn't tell you. Now, that tells me two things. One, they know where he is. <laughs> and number two, they're honest with me. And and I'm not going to even bother. Yeah, so, yes. uh, you know, then we take a hard look at mom to see what phone she's working and or work, you know, uh, talking on and, and so on. So anyhow, it's it's a can't, you know, it's adult hide and seek. So obviously, because, you know, like the city of New York and the suburbs and, you know, you have so many different boroughs and, you know, Brooklyn, New Jersey, all these areas. So you, you also have a lot of cultural differences happening, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the Hispanics, Puerto Ricans, the blacks, everything, the, the Irish, the Polish, sure. whoever. I mean, you've all these different boroughs. So you have to kind of learn how to work each neighborhood differently and have people in your force who are kind of integrated into the culture as well, don't you? Oh, diversity is huge. I mean, especially in a, a city like New York, every every block changes, you know. So, you know, and, and you, you rely heavily on on uh, your team, people you surround yourself with, whether it's a, a female, male, black, white, Hispanic, Italian, it doesn't matter. You know, I did well in, in the Bay Ridge, Bensonhurst area of Brooklyn. It was all Italian, the mafia, the five families in New York City. You shift gears, you're going after, uh, you know, some some drug dealer up in Harlem or whatever. So, yes, you, you got to you got to kind of know how to treat different people. And, and you're absolutely 100 percent correct. Um, you know, and interviews are interesting as well. Uh, you know, if you're in you're in the, like Crown Heights or in a Hasidic Jewish uh, neighborhood, um, they're great to interview because you'll knock on the door and you'll say, uh, listen, we're looking for this guy. Here's his photo. I, he used to be your neighbor. But what do he do? Who is he? What is he? What, what? Yeah, Joe, I don't know. Him. Why? Where'd he go? And it, before you know it, you're being interviewed by him. So it's like, I mean, right. it's just, it, it, you kind of got to have fun with, with some of this stuff. But, uh, and you got to know when to get serious as well. So it's a tough job. But the U.S. Marshal Service, especially post 9 11, um, you know, we were mandated by Congress to establish permanent uh, fugitive task forces throughout the country. So the New York, New Jersey Regional Fugitive Task Force. Uh, we were the flagship or the model for the rest of the country. Uh, now they have eight regional task forces. And to give you a little bit of an idea how, how we operate, my task force, my former task force, we had 350 full-time investigators from over 90 different federal, state, and local agencies. Uh, we operated out of 13 wow. offices. The specific language in the mandate was to target the most dangerous, violent felony fugitives across the globe. So like I said earlier, that's your murderers, your rapists, terrorists, the, you know, drug, narcotics violators, sex offenders, the worst of the worst. So we were we had a saying that we're the best of the best going after the worst of the worst. And, and uh, we were averaging about 100 to 120 arrests a week just in my region alone of very, very violent people. So, you know, the statistics are staggering. Yeah. But can I ask you then, obviously, because you're looking for these, you know, violent criminals and predators. Is there a certain level of frustration then? Because do some of these guys end up back on the streets? Now they do. <laughs> with, now they do. With this administration, it's been a little nuts around around the country, uh, which is horrible in my in my view. I mean, that's just, you know, me specifically. But, uh, um, you know, it, it is tough. The bail reform stuff. I mean, I, I don't understand it, especially the caliber of fugitives and, and violent people we, we go after. And I can tell you, uh, the community doesn't like it either. I mean, nobody no, wants. I can imagine. Yeah, nobody wants those type of people 
uh, in their communities, you know, living that, that, uh, you know, un- they're not law abiding citizens. They're, you know, they're in a lawless, uh, uh, you know, mindset. And, and not only that, they're being sent a message that says, Hey, go do what you want, steal from the stores, shoot people. You'll be right out back on the street as soon as you're arraigned the next day. And, and it doesn't, you know, it's gotten a little crazy right now in some of these cities uh, around this country. So, and it's tough, it's tough for law enforcement. Why would you risk a pension, uh, a career uh, over nothing, you know, and they're, and they're not getting supported. This whole defund the police thing uh, that, that they started was completely ridiculous. And, and uh, you know, I, I didn't understand it. Do you have a few bad cops? Of course you do. You got a few bad doctors and dentists and lawyers and a few bad of everything. Uh, but, you know, as a whole, you, you know, police officers, you know, they got a tough job, tough job to do. And, and I salute, especially the ones in uniform. I salute them every day. Well, as you said there, you're going after the worst of the worst. And not only now are you dealing with that, but you're dealing with bureaucracy, red tape, and seeing those violent offenders coming back on the street is not a great feeling. And not at all. We used to laugh and we used to call it job security. Uh, But uh, it's not funny anymore because the type of people that they're letting out, um, and and you hear about it all the time. And even the borders, the Mexican border on the south, um, you know, the narcotics trafficking, the fentanyl that's coming in, the, the cartel members that are crossing the border. It's out of control. It is just crazy out of control. Fentanyl is the big, big danger really now, isn't it? Because I did a podcast there big time. Um, a few months ago, a few weeks ago, maybe. And we were talking about, let's say, just in Ireland, the, the rural drug use, how you know farmers and people who you would never associate with drug use are now kind of dabbling. And fentanyl in countries like Ireland, small countries, is not bad yet. But you kind of look at America and the use of fentanyl on the street and you think, how long before the synthetic drugs reach, you know, Europe and Ireland and these kind of countries? It's out of control. It's a big business. There's a lot of money. Um, And where there's drugs, there's guns. I mean, it's a violent, violent uh, a business that they're engaged in, especially with these cartels and, and these gang members. I mean, gangs are out of control, you know, human trafficking. It's just, it's endless. And, and, and they want to defund the police. Go figure. <laughs> Can I ask you then, when you see, let's say, any U.S. marshal, are they exclusively a U.S. marshal or are they working as a police officer and then they do shifts as U.S. marshal or do you get promoted to a U.S. marshal? No, U.S. Marshals are, well, it's the structure of the of the agency, we fall under the Department of Justice. Okay. Uh, the four main agencies are FBI, DEA, ATF, and U.S. Marshals. Uh, we're somewhat of the redheaded stepchild in the Department of Justice. We have about 4,000 <laughs> deputy U.S. Marshals. The FBI has about 30,000 agents. So the size comparison, but we, owe, we do more with less. The fugitive business, um, and there's, you know, Let's, let's put this into perspective, Simon. The U.S. Marshals is the oldest federal law enforcement agency in this country. Uh, George Washington appointed the first 13 U.S. Marshals in 1789. So in the job description back there is pretty much the same as it is now, except for we're flying, you know, jet planes and, and not, not riding horses, although they are riding horses in some areas around the country. Uh, but, you know, we're the oldest federal law enforcement agency in this country. It's such a storied agency. Uh, and, and the stories behind it from, from Wyatt Earp uh, to Bat Masterson to Bass Reeves, I mean, uh, historically, it's a great agency. I'm proud to be a member of it. What's, what's unique about us? 
is credentials that I held with the Secret Service, you had a specific language that was in your credentials, protection of the president, whatever. United States Marshal Service, our credentials read to enforce all laws of the United States. So very specific. There's a variety of law enforcement that we do. But to answer your question, with respect to the task forces, we'll bring on state and local partners. We'll deputize them for two years, as long as they're working you know, on our fugitive teams. They're deputized U.S. Marshals, pretty much giving them the same authority that I have, jumping on airplanes, crossing state lines or whatever around the world. Uh, but once their, their time is up and if they leave our task forces, they lose that. And they, be, you know, they go back to their local or state agency. So there's only 4,000, I'll say, authentic or real um, U.S. Marshals. Um, and, and these other deputized, they're, they're you know, state or local detectives or sheriffs or whatever uh, that help us out. But it's a joint effort. It's that force multiplier uh, that really works well. I wish we had these joint task forces years ago uh, when I was working fugitives because it just makes life so much easier when you've got a parole officer, you know, a DEA agent, a, a local officer, a probation officer. You know, everybody brings something to the table. Corrections, they'll tell us who visited the guy in jail. You know, parole, what do you got on this guy? What did he do or this girl over the past? Who visited him? Uh, you know, what, what were his addresses, that last known address or whatever? So everybody brings something to the table. It's a joint effort, you know, and it's at the speed of the Internet, which helps a lot. So when you're on the run, timing's everything, as you know. The thing about that is what, what's really good is, like as you said, with local law enforcement, you know, if you have people who are on the street and have their informants and have their people, they are going to be a valuable help to your team. Oh, big time, valuable help. And they're trained like we are. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing when you're making an entry at Old Dark 30, you've got to know who's on your right, who's on your left. You have to be tactically sound. Um, and, and we afforded all that, that you know, state-of-the-art equipment, manpower, money. Um, and, you know, for, we, we want to go home safe at night every night as well. So, um, you know, it, it's, 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 a tough, it's really, really a tough job. So um, I do want to wrap it up by telling you that I have been busy. I'm doing TV shows now. I'm filming a show for, for Amazon. It's a cold case show and, and uh, uh, working on another one. In fact, that's what this next call is about. And here's what I'm doing. My wife decided she's in the fashion business. So she, she wanted to put our, our heads together. So we're, we're opening up. We're actually uh, launching a, a tactical clothing line. So you get a chance. I want you to hit a website. It's called odark30.com. I saw that. And, and it's quite interesting because that's, that's saying odark30. Dark I didn't know what it meant there. But once you were using it during the interview, I went, oh, that's what it means, odark30. It is. Yeah. So it's the letter O, uh, odark30.com. We've got some hoodies and shirts and hats on there now just for brand recognition. Uh, but we're launching a full line of tactical boots coats, hat, you name it, we've got it. You know, besides like the other TV work you've done, Hunting Hitler, Hunted Manhunters, what, is there new stuff yeah. you can talk about, like shows coming up? I'm doing a show on Amazon. I just launched a couple of shows on Fox Nation, which is a paid subscription network. I did a show called Who Really Shot Abraham Lincoln. I was the lead in there. Okay. I narrated that. That's out uh, streaming right now. Uh, did a couple of shows with Nancy Grace on, on uh, Fox Nation. I'm doing a show for Amazon. It's a cold case show that I have the lead in. It's pretty interesting. Right now we're doing the Black Dahlia case. Uh, Elizabeth oh, Short. Right. Yeah, she was murdered back in 1947. Very interesting case. 
so that'll be coming out hopefully by the end of the year, at least the, at least the pilot in the first episode. So I'm staying busy and I got a couple of things on the burner as well that, uh, that we're working on and uh, with the U.S. Marshals, I want to do somewhat of a manhunters, but uh, you know we'll we'll uh, we're working on that project as well. So I'm I, like I said, I'm supposed to be on a golf course in Florida. I'm retired, but not working out too good, Simon. <laughs> no, well, I mean that's good. I I can imagine for it a is. person who's had such a varied career like yours, it's hard to stop and sit on the golf course and sit yeah. on the 19th <laughs> hole. So you know, it's, you, you have too much going on in your head. So listen. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, if there's um, if there's other stuff in the future you want us to plug, just let us know. We'd love to help you out and with your, your, your old Dark 30 and everything. And we look forward to your new TV shows. No, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. I'm sorry I, I got to jump it up, but I'll definitely come back. We got a lot to talk about that we missed. Brilliant. But, uh, uh, it was a 35-year career. The government owned me for a long time. So there's plenty of conversations we can have and we can tell stories and, and do some laughing. So thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Lenny DePaul. You're welcome. All right. Thank you very much, Lenny DePaul. It was really interesting talking to you. What a varied career. I mean, from the Navy to the Secret Service to the United States Marshal and then on to amazing hit TV shows. What a career and amazing. Such an interesting life. And, you know, I know you're not done yet. There's a few more things to come, I can imagine. So we look forward to catching up with you again sometime in the future. But thank you very much for appearing on the show. It was a pleasure. And we really loved hearing your stories. Lenita Paul, everybody. Okay, thank you very much for listening, guys. We hope you're enjoying the content. We hope you're enjoying the guests. And we hope you're enjoying everything you hear so far. And we just like to tell you, please follow and like the show. Subscribe where you can. Spread the word. Share it. Share the love. Tell everyone about our show. Let's make it a bigger and better thing. We appreciate it so much. Thank you very much. Till the next time, look after yourself. Look after your family. My name is Simon K. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast. Until the next time, bye-bye. <laughs>